0: I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. The cool, crisp fall weather settling in on Middle Tennessee is a great reminder that it is harvest season. If you've got an excess of goodies from your garden, now is the perfect time to preserve them. It's also a good time of year to head out to the woods and forage for things like nuts and berries. But if you're like me, you have no idea where to start with canning and preserving and even less understanding about what wild foods are safe to eat, well, we've got you covered. Later this hour, we'll learn how to find good stuff in the forest and preserve that fall bounty through the winter months. But first, it's time for at Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at ThisIsNashville and on Instagram at ThisIsNashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna.
1: Hey, Khalil. It's been a really quiet week online, Hmm. but we did hear from one of our guests over the weekend about a pretty early episode.
0: Well, who was it?
1: It was the artist M. Simone Boyd.
0: Yes, a fellow Best of Nashville winner. Okay, so Simone was the mastermind behind the Women of North Nashville Mosaics at Elizabeth Park. The mosaics depict an honor Black women who were pillars of the North Nashville community. Last week, the Nashville scene named it the best community art.
1: A much-deserved award. Mm -hmm. But anyways, back in May, we did an episode about the mosaics and invited Simone and the descendants of the woman depicted. Over the weekend on Twitter, Simone shared more about what it took behind the scenes to bring that episode to y'all, our listeners. She tweeted... Senior producer Steve Harouche took a very long walk with me, also in the heat, around North Nashville, and listened to me rant about development, housing, and erasure. Then he was willing to follow the pace of trust and build relationships with neighbors, which led to an episode of This is Nashville, where daughters and grandchildren shared their stories and memories of the women featured. Y'all, hearing how Miss Mary Louise Watson cared for her neighbor's wife after he called them with death threats It was just too much.
0: Okay, for those who don't know, Mary Louise Watson was a leader when it came to desegregating Nashville public schools. During the 1950s, she sent her daughter, Barbara, to the previously all-white Jones Elementary School. Back in May for this episode, we were joined by Mary Louise's daughters, Barbara Watson and Letha Carter, who shared the story about the death threats their mother received.
2: And she started telling us that when we were receiving the phone calls, that one day she answered the phone, and she recognized the voice. And that voice was of a neighbor that lived two doors down from us. She never told my father. She said, I couldn't tell my husband, because I knew if I told him, he would probably go kill him. So, you know, at another time, I asked, I said, Mom, all these years you knew that, and you never told us that you recognized the voice of you know, people that were making threats? And she said, no, she said, I held it to myself, that neighbor's wife uh, Mm -hmm. was diagnosed with cancer. My mother went to his front door and offered her services to help him with his ailing wife to sit with her, uh, wash her clothes, Mm -hmm. clean her house. I I don't know what kind of. Person could do that knowing that someone had made that kind of threat against her own child. Mm -hmm. But that's who my mother was.
1: That story that they told was just absolutely harrowing. And you know Mm -hmm. what? I could totally understand why it stuck with Simone.
0: That's right. I really like how Simone wrote it. Following the pace of trust. That's really at the heart of what we're doing with this show. We try to put in the time it takes to earn trust from the community. And it's really cool to see the way it pays off. It also means a lot to see Simone putting that out there. All praise to her for the project and for giving us the opportunity to highlight it. All right, Anna, what else do we have for listeners this week?
1: It's election season. Yay. Okay, we're probably, as journalists, we're probably the only people who actually get excited for that. But anyways, <laughs> from our listeners, we actually want to hear what concerns you have for Governor Billy and Democratic candidate Dr. Jason Martin ahead of this upcoming governor's race. So, listeners, this is your chance to step into the shoes of a debate moderator and submit your questions for the candidates at thisisnashville.org.
0: Now, look, we can't yet promise that there will be an actual debate between the candidates. But, hey, the more questions we get from you, the more fodder we've got to convince our candidates to join us, right? Of course.
1: Also, we're going to get answers for you either way. So send in your questions.
0: In other news, the Titans in the mayor's office reached a deal to build a new football stadium, which reminds me, that was a crazy interactive show we had back in the spring. Is this a sign it's time to have another one?
1: I'd say so. We know our listeners have a lot to say about the stadium and development. Yes. And they haven't had a lot to say in whether this should happen or not yet. So, yes, let's make space for that on our show again.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of making space for folks, we've got one more thing, right, Anna?
1: Yes. We're bringing you a Citizen Nashville episode this week all about navigating and applying for disability. As always, we want to hear from you. Head to thisisnashville.org and tell us what challenges you faced with disability benefits in Tennessee, what restrictions make your life harder, and what would you like to see changed?
0: Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna. We'll see you soon.
1: And y'all know where to find me online.
0: Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It is super easy and quick, and it helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll head out on a foraging expedition and learn from experts on how to find food and other good stuff in the wild. Are you a foraging fanatic? What's your favorite find? Tweet us at thisisnashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. For thousands of years, humans have found sustenance in the natural world. Of course, we have grocery stores now and even apps to have food delivered to our homes. But if we get out into nature, we can find all kinds of good things to eat, along with lots of medicinal plants and herbs. And Middle Tennessee has an incredibly diverse selection. Fall is an especially good time to get out and forage. Earlier this week, we sent our intern, Tori Hoover, out into the wilderness to forage for survival. Okay, I'm kidding. Tori met up with trained forager Alan Powell at Percy Warner to see what they could find.
3: We have a deeply protected little area and it's filled with a variety of trees and shrubs. Uh, fall is starting to take hold, we're starting to see a lot of yellows, where the woods and the open spaces meet are very, very uh, good areas to look for things. That's where a lot, you'll find a lot of animals and tracks there. Um, that's usually where things kind of like, where there's these two type of ecosystems meet and there's usually a good amount of stuff to look around for. This is plantain. That's called smart This yeah. is called shiso or perilla. Notice also there's dandelions at our feet. Pawpaw trees. That is stinging nettle. Oh. Beech nuts, wild grapes. Yeah. The persimmon texture is interesting if for people who haven't had it, it's almost grainy a little bit, but not too much. Um, there you are. Sorry about the sticky. i just take a little bit. And let it sit in your mouth long enough that if it doesn't like dry out your mouth, then you can eat the rest. of it. <laughs> what do you think?
1: They're very soft. Mhm. Mhm. Very sweet.
3: Does it remind you of anything?
1: I mean, it's kind of orangey.
3: Oh, that's interesting. I would have never thought to say that, but mm-hmm. I can kind of see where you're coming from there.
1: I mean, we are really
4: just <laughs> barely out of the out of the parking lot area.
3: And I think that kind of demonstrates perhaps the most striking thing about wild foods is that they really are abundant and everywhere. And the more you know about them, the more, of course, you can take advantage of that. But um, it is a process where there can be problematic mistakes made. And so knowledge is key.
0: Yes, knowledge is key. That was Alan Powell, trained forager and operations director at Nashville Grown, and he joins me now. Alan, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you, Khalil. Also with us is Leah Larabelle. She is an avid forager and co-owner of High Garden Tea. Leah, thanks for being here.
4: Thanks so much for having me, and hi, Alan. Hi, Leah, long
3: time (laughs) no see.
1: Oh no, I've missed you.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully we can facilitate an in-person reunion Very soon. So, okay, so before we get started here, listeners got to ask you a question. Do you forage? Do you have questions for our guests? Tweet us at ThisIsNashville. All right, so let's start from the beginning. Alan, tell me, how did you get your start in foraging?
3: For me, it was very much about plant identification just because every spring out in the woods, I'd see lots of beautiful wildflowers. And after a while, instead of saying, oh, yeah, there's that yellow one again or there's that blue one again, I started buying books, looking up online, trying to learn names. And then the real shift came when I took a class in Native American philosophy, and it suddenly became apparent to me that these plants had much more benefits and uses than what I was aware of. Simply placing a name to them, that's nice, but if I could then supplement my diet and my medicine cabinet with the things I saw, I thought that would be good. So I started a lot of, like, I, I surround myself with books and the Internet, and I just do a lot of photographing, bringing home samples, trying to understand what I'm looking at. And then I went to a formal class um, at the Tom Brown Tracker School up in New Jersey. And when I was there, in the intro to edible plants, I realized I could have taught that section in the intro class. Mm. And so that kind of really put me on a confidence Uh, Binge, where I came back and I started offering what I was seeing to the chefs that I knew.
0: So you founded this local food hub called Nashville Grown to help connect farmers and restaurants. So how does that work exactly?
3: The simple version is that there is an online ordering system. Chefs can open an account, go on the ordering system, where farmers around that work with us will be posting their products for sale. And then it's just like online shopping for anything. They just put things in a shopping cart and confirm their order. And then it's my job to get all the stuff that was ordered from many restaurants. So tomorrow's a delivery day and we're gonna do 32 deliveries. Mm. So I have to pull all of that stuff together. Like right now while I'm here, it's coming into our kitchen. Uh, I also have an employee out picking it up from farms and then we reorganize it to go out on distribution to those who ordered it. And and then, of course, I have to collect the money from the people who buy it and then redistribute that back out to the farms.
0: Now, what's the difference between foraging for restaurants and foraging for personal use? The primary difference is volume, I
3: would mm. say, more than anything else. I mean, there is no doubt that chefs are, are oftentimes more creative than most of us in the kitchen, and so they have a particular interest in finding unique products so that they can kind of set their menu apart and set their own skills apart. And so when I'm out there looking, I'm sometimes picking things that I personally don't like to eat, mm-hmm. but they like the flavor of, or something that, uh, that I can find plenty of for myself, just being a single eater, but if they're supposed to be serving a dish to, let's say, you know, 20 or 30 tables a night, and some of those are gonna order that dish for the whole week, there's a lot more volume that has to be picked for them
0: and so that's a big difference now leah how did you get into the craft
4: um mine began in a personal health journey i had a long long time long struggles with some um, urinary and stuff issues and modern medicine did not have any answers for me and so at about age 18 i found an herbalist who would take me under her wing and she taught me herbalism and I finally found relief that I hadn't found in 18 years and so it was never a question of if herbs worked they just did and so I was finding myself buying herbs and buying herbs from Oregon and Washington you know so forth and I started studying deeper because you just can't help but do that when you find these things you love. And I studied with a man, actually, his name's Daryl Patton, and he was like following a squirrel around the woods. And he was like, and this and this and this. And then just my mind blew open and exploded with the realization, all of these things that I need for my health are right here at my feet. I don't need to go order from these states far away and through the mail system when I'm standing right next to these little medicinal miracles. And so I, that was, I guess, 20 years ago or more, and I've never stopped. And so, and I like Alan, once you find something that you love, you can't help but want to share it with everyone. And beyond the medicine, I found a deeper relationship and community in the wild and filled parts of myself that had been um, empty for a long time by getting out there.
0: Was there a particular lesson that really stood out to you?
4: I think we've isolated ourselves um, to, you know, we're in these four walls and we drive our cars and we get fast food and go to the grocery store and put ourselves in this state of self-induced isolation. And there's this sense of kind of like loneliness and like there's something wrong, but I can't figure out what it is. And it's these deeper skills that we've had forever since the beginning of our time. And our culture is slowly losing this. This is a new phenomenon that isn't sustainable. And so we're losing these skills that we need and our instincts know that we need. And so getting out, we don't necessarily have to. In the beginning, foraging sounded intimidating to me. Like, I can't make a whole meal. You don't have to make a whole meal. It's just starting to identify these plants and establish relationship with them again and be like, I can make acorn flour. I do know that I can eat that pecan straight out of the hole and I know how to crack it. Just the most basic thing starts filling these voids that you know but you don't know that you have. Mm. There's so much more to foraging than just
0: eating. Now, High Garden Tea offers a wide range of teas and tinctures. So how how do you go about choosing what to forage for your business?
4: Mm, I try to support as many local growers as possible. Um, like we're working with the Appalachian Beginner Forest Farmer Coalition and their herb hub. And then we do have to supplement. And honestly, what I forage for, because we do have larger volume, are the things that I can't find. Like I forage my own perilla or shiso. Um, our own spice bush, things like that. That's kind of what we forage for because like Alan's talking about, it's larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I forage for all the stuff for my own home apothecary. It's 100% foraged by me. All right.
0: <laughs> okay. So let's say I'm taking a hike through the park. What wild mm-hmm. foods are out there right now to forage? Alan, can you give us some, some examples of what we would see?
3: Well, you know, I was out there yesterday, and we saw, first of all, it's fall, so we saw a lot of nuts. And uh, Leah just mentioned acorn flour, <clears throat> But we do have a variety of different nuts here that include the hickories. Uh, we also have beech nuts. And, um, of course, the one that's largely missing from the ecosystem these days is the chestnut, which was an immense food source for both humans and animals for hundreds and hundreds of years, probably thousands of years but um, it's largely missing because of the disease that took out most of the population in
0: the U.S. Are any of these easily identifiable?
3: Well, I think most people would certainly recognize, like, an acorn. You know, nuts are easy to spot. The question is, like, for acorns, you have to know how to leach the tannins out of the acorns or else it'll be bitter.
0: What uh, Can you talk about that process real quick? Uh,
3: it's actually relatively simple. Tannins are water-soluble. so. If you were to take, if we went back a couple hundred years and observed what was likely happening amongst indigenous peoples, what they were probably doing is cracking their nuts open, breaking them into somewhat smaller pieces, sitting them in a mesh bag in a creek or spring that over time, the tannins are just leaching downstream. And uh, I know Leah mentioned Daryl Patton, one of Daryl's great, I don't know if it was his idea, but he spreads it around a lot. And it's a brilliant idea if you put that same bag of acorns in the back of your toilet tank, which, by the way, <laughs> people, is all clean water. Um, huh. It slowly but surely leaches those tannins out. There are shortcuts. You can use a blender to get a slurry, which releases more tannins more quickly. Some people also cook the nuts down in several changes of water. So there's, it's not hard, but it does take a little knowledge and
0: some time. Okay, the back of our toilet tank is clean, but we do want to be sure that we're clear of infection because flu season is here. And you know, what are the available plants with medicinal value out there that will help with a cough, congestion, or a runny nose, Leah?
4: Oh, so much, and at all times. That's the thing is every moment of every day, there is medicine near you. You just need to know where to look. And um, so right now, there's, like, you'd mentioned, Gallatin mentioned the beautiful yellow. There's goldenrod, and that helps to dry the drips. Um, you would simply boil the leaves and the top flower parts. And a lot of the pollinators have gotten the Lovely pollen from them already. And that is something when we're foraging to consider the other wildlife, the, our wild neighbors, and when they may, may need it because they don't have grocery stores to go to. So being sure to do ethical wild crafting. Um, but the goldenrod's wonderful to dry the drip. Something called ground ivy, or other people call it creeping charlie. There's, I've not found a plant more powerful at drying up that post nasal drip and drippy sinuses. Pine needles. You can steam those and breathe in that steam to battle sinus infections. Believe it or not, poke berries, if you know how to process them are strong, beautiful lymphatic tonics. It's, I mean, I could go on forever. There's just, it's abundant medicine at all times.
0: You know, so Creeping Charlie, is that really something I can pick out myself?
4: It's the the ground ivy or Creeping Charlie. It's about the identification. You'd want to know for sure that you're grabbing that you're getting it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just this lacy little leaf that creeps along the ground. And once you see it, you're like, Oh, that's like covering my lawn or I see that all over the place. That's medicinal. Absolutely. It is.
0: Now, what about collection? Is there a special method to foraging?
4: I, Alan, can I take this for a second? Yeah, please do, yeah. <laughs> um, I, um, this is something I'm really, really passionate about, and that is because um, when folks were doing a lot of foraging, back in the day, Indigenous folks and stuff, the relationship that they had with the wild was a beautiful and very connected one. And like I'd mentioned, we've kind of isolated ourselves and we are coming from, it's just truth, a little bit of a consumerism, a consumer culture. And so not taking that consumer culture out to the wild. That is not what we're doing here. We're not shopping. Um, It's about connection and being a responsible steward of the land. Um, And that is something I really appreciate about Alan. We worked with him for a long time and He's very conscious of his wildcrafters and their practices, so just a shout out there. Um, I have a simple ABCs. I know this sounds silly, but like A, make sure that what you're looking for is abundant and mm-hmm. aware of what's called um, at-risk plants. There are at-risk plants that we have this beautiful, diverse system, but a lot of um, plants are forest plants, and we're losing our forests, and so we're losing these plants. So you don't go just grab ginseng and just grab golden seal and wild yam. You have to do it very consciously and know how much to collect so be sure that you're harvesting from abundance the b is browse and like go for to different stands and also bring the right tools a sharp knife puts a lot less damage and easier to heal wound on plants than just ripping and tearing it and the c is a confident id make sure you know what you were gathering um, that's so important. And the D-E-F-G-H-I is don't ever forget gratitude and humble intentions. That is so huge. is And because, again, it's not just going out and just getting everything we can. We don't just need food. We need this close relationship and to get back and find that wild part of ourselves. And that's a huge part of it is to get out there and to recognize what these plants also need, um, and when to gather them so that they're able to produce again and so forth and, and only bring, only get how much you need. I bring very small containers when I'm, um, wildcrafting so that I'm not tempted to over harvest. And so that's just a really simple little something that I go by.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Acolona. We're talking this hour about foraging for wild foods and herbs in Middle Tennessee with experts Alan Powell and Leah Larabel. Do you forage? Do you have questions for our guests? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guest has experienced foraging under pressure. Katie Koss is the former executive chef at Husk Nashville. She recently appeared on an episode of the reality show Chefs versus wild on hulu katie thanks for joining us
5: thanks for having me
0: so you forged competitively that's got to be a fun experience tell tell us what's the premise of the show
5: uh so the premise of the show is uh we spent one week out in the wilderness of british columbia they didn't tell us whether we were having uh gonna be dropped in fresh water or salt water and we had exactly 96 hours to forage everything that we needed to make a three course meal.
0: Wow, did you get fresh water or salt water? I'm curious. Fresh water. Okay, okay, so you had to forage for everything that you prepared and ate. What was that experience like?
5: Well, uh, I went in the end part of November, so it was extremely cold and kind of at the end of the season. Uh, for a lot of things that, you know, I was really hoping for and the things that I studied for. I mean, obviously before, you know, not knowing I did as much research as possible uh, as to what I was going to find. And we had a a short little botany class um, right before we went out. But uh, and I I will tell you, there was not a whole lot of of eating because of the the lack thereof of product um, Mm -hmm. that I found.
0: So who did match up with? I can't imagine they sent you out there alone.
5: No, they matched me up with a survivalist, which was probably wise on their part. Um, and he is a trained uh, Air Force Sears um, specialist. So he actually trains people to survive um, in the wilderness with uh, absolutely no footprint.
0: So after you had to cook this meal of, with the things that you foraged, what, what was it like to cook with such a limited kitchen?
5: Uh, it was actually amazing and everything that I love to do in general. Uh, you know, there was no electricity, uh, we had to pump our own water. <laughs> and mm. um, and it was all over, over the fire cooking, which is what I specialize in, you know, coming from Husk. Uh, it was it was amazing, it was a very cool experience.
0: And Alan and Leah, I'm, I'm curious, we, would either one of you be open to the experience of being on a competitive foraging show, Alan? You know, a few years ago,
3: a television producer got in touch with me about another show and they wanted me and one other forager and so we made a little video we never got on the show it was i think it ran a pilot and that was it i'm not necessarily opposed to it but it's it's not really like being competitive in this manner is not very much in my nature mm-hmm. i my my primary competitor in the world is myself and I'm not really interested in competing much with other people. But I wouldn't say I'm close to the idea, but I, I watch the stress level of people on shows like that, the look on their face, the the grinding jaws, and mm-hmm. you can see the tension. Uh, I don't know if Katie experienced any of that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah.
0: Leah, how about you?
4: I'm with Alan. I, I think I just, yeah, I'm not a good pressure girl. I remember even in T-ball, not wanting to swing at the tee, afraid I'd me. Be- <laughs> I do it all just for enjoyment and and peace of mind. So props to people that can do stuff under pressure like that. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, to me, it kind of feels like there's something fulfilling about going out into the world, finding your food, as opposed to just hitting up a grocery store. Leah, so, you know, what are the benefits of foraging that go beyond what we can consume?
4: There's... (sighs) It's so many I'm going to have to rein myself in here. So obviously it's um, most of our veggies at supermarkets and so forth are on basically life support of fertilizers and God knows what. And I mean, a lot of local farmers are growing um, sustainable, sustainable ways and regenerative soil practices and so forth. So thank goodness. But weeds, what we call weeds and everything, these are not on life support. These are growing exactly where they want to. And they are packed with easy to assimilate vitamins and minerals, and they are just ready to nourish us. And they're having to adapt to modern toxins and environmental stressors just like us. So they have these medicinal constituents that are adjusting to these stressors that our bodies can also recognize. So we're getting food and medicine when we're consuming these things that are just sitting there like chickweed is just waiting to be eaten. I don't go to the store and buy spinach. I eat chickweed. Um, and then beyond that, you don't have to make a whole meal. Like i would mentioned, it's just little sprinkles of the wild on your food begins to open up that, um, door between you and, and nature and knock those walls down of starting to feel confident and empowered. And there's just something that awakens in you. Some call it rewilding, some call it reconnection, but it's just going out and eating something and being like, I just did that. I just did that. I just can't even explain the feeling of just nibbling something or sprinkling a tiny something on your toast it truly fills something in you that's been hungry
0: for a long time. Mm -hmm. Alan, I see you brought some stuff with you. What is that you're holding?
3: Uh, This is a passion fruit, or it's sometimes called a maypop, but Tennessee has two state wildflowers, and one of them is the passion flower. This is the fruit that forms on the plant after the flower gets pollinated, and it's very Uh, tropical-like. The internal structure, the part that you eat, is very much broken down like a pomegranate in the sense that it's a seed surrounded by a little sack of goodness. And I brought them in hopes that you'd be willing to step out on a limb and give it a shot. You You know me. I'm down. You just have to squeeze that, and this this middle will come out, and then you just suck it out of there. Okay, here we go, y'all. And also comment on the smell, because it smells Mm. really
0: interesting. It smells wonderful. This is actually Delicious. Okay, so how can we, like, we identify these out in the wild? Ooh, this is good. Well, the
3: so for most people, identification of plants is easiest when there's a flower. And uh, that way, so with this flower, this is an incredibly unique-looking flower, the passion flower. So uh, if you were to see a picture of one and then spotted one in the wild, there's really nothing that looks anything like it. And so this one is a fairly easy one to start people off on. And the other... You know, the usually I start people with yard weeds. Okay. Things that they see all the time at their feet anyway. And um but yeah, so this is this is just one thing. I have a couple of vines, and I know you did a story a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was just last week, where you were talking about locust restaurant. Well, the majority of what I harvested off of my plants this year went to locust. So if you were eating at locust and they brought out a passion it's because I brought it to them.
0: All right. That is Alan Powell, Operations Director with Nashville Grown. He was joined by Leah Larabelle, co-owner of High Garden Tea. Alan, Leah, thanks so, so much for being with us today and sharing your experience. And if you don't mind, Alan, leaving the rest of those passion fruits, you will be my own personal hero. Katie Koss is going to stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll learn how to preserve the foods we forged foraged or harvested from our gardens. What can be canned? What should be pickled? And is it possible to can a chicken? Join the conversation by tweeting us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. little colona and this is nashville i imagine that for businesses that sell mason jars things are looking pretty good right now why not only can you serve cocktails in them it's canning time it's the time of year when people who've toiled all spring and summer in their gardens are now sorry for this impending pun enjoying the fruits and veggies of their labor. Depending on the method, it can be a fairly intricate process that involves more than just stuffing some peaches into a jar and sealing them. Here to give us some how-tos and don't-dos is Elizabeth Sanders. She's an expert preserver and the director of the UT-TSU Extension. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us, and welcome to This is Nashville.
6: Hi Khalil, thanks so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you with us. So, you know tell me, how does canning and preserving, how does that fit into the work you do?
6: Sure. So with us being a part of the Agricultural Extension Service, which is present in every state across the nation, and here in Tennessee, we're in every county across the state, we uh, teach people how to use the resources that agriculture provides us. So a large part of that is what comes out of our large commercial farms to what comes out of um, a small herb garden or uh, little hydroponic uh, systems that we can have on our rooftops and balconies here in the city. Um, you know, if you've grown anything like a tomato or even a cucumber, you can eat it as soon as it's ripe, you know, pretty quickly if you just have a couple. But if you have more than that, you will quickly find that you are um, have way more than what you know what to do with. And so that's really where preserving comes in hand.
0: What makes it a good skill to learn?
6: Oh, my gosh, it's it's an opportunity for in many facets to utilize the resources that we have available when they're available. It's a great way for engaging family members to, uh, to pass down generational recipes and practices and whatnot. And also it's a lot of fun not to mention, it gives one an opportunity to really have more of an impact and hands-on engagement with what they're putting into their bodies, what they're consuming. So if you're trying to be mindful of salt content or sugar content, or there's just a lot of allergies and you wanna make a lot of things um, in bulk, Uh, that's canning is one of the best ways that you can do that.
0: Katie Koss is still with us now Katie you were the executive chef at Husk but before that you ran their preservation operations what was that like?
5: Uh, That it was amazing I actually got my certification through UT um, and I mean, it it was everything that we did throughout the summer and throughout the wintertime is is constantly canning, constantly trying to keep our larder uh, stocked um, because all of the amazing farmers of, of Middle Tennessee just, you know, they would bring us an abundance of product. And sometimes we we didn't always have, um, you know, the right timing to, to sell all of it. So um, we would preserve it and save it for uh, another
0: week. Now, listeners, join the discussion. Tell us what you are hoping to harvest and preserve from your garden this fall. Tweet us at ThisIsNashville. Now, now, Katie, what are some of your favorite foods to preserve this time of year?
5: This time of year, um, honestly, I really love to, I don't know. I, I mean, I, it kind of depends on what we would get in at the restaurant. Persimmons is one of them. Um, drying persimmons, uh, pickling them, uh, is definitely on my top of my list. Um, mm. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure pretty much anything that we could get in.
0: Uh, Elizabeth, what are some of your fall favorites?
5: I would say, um,
6: soups are one of my favorites. I am a soup girl. And so, um, whether that be vegetable soup with things that were left over, um, just, from the garden and the, you know the summertime you're trying to find ways to use those or you know using one of those favorite recipes and um, that makes a really quick meal to put together um, on a busy day if you're if you're a working individual. So I would say that it is soup season and a perfect timing to uh, to bring out those pressure canners and preserve that.
0: All right, so let's talk about the methods of preservation. Elizabeth, let's start easy for the novice. What is the easiest way to preserve our food?
6: Honestly. Using the freezer, you know, simply putting things, blanching your vegetables really quickly, um, just in some boiling water for 30 seconds to a minute, pulling them out, putting in some ice water, and then um, letting them them dry off just a little bit, tossing them into a Ziploc bag. That's the easiest way to preserve with the least amount of equipment. Um, We are very fortunate to have access to freezers in most common households, and so that's the easiest way for sure.
0: Okay, so after freezing, what is next up?
6: From the... Yeah, so from there um, would be drying. Um, most uh, most ovens nowadays actually have a drying setting, and the main thing is that it's got a constant flow of air going while also being gently heated. Um, really want to make sure that we're drying things out appropriately. There's um, so it just take just a little bit of extra knowledge there to make sure you when it's safe uh, for something to be put away after being dry. But you can also purchase a dehydrator from most um, most stores or online, and it's very simple. You just slice things up pretty. easily easily, um, small pieces, and then let them dry for usually eight to 12 hours, depending on how large and what you're actually preser- or drying. And uh, that's, that's ne- the next one. It just requires a little bit extra of, uh, equipment.
0: Now, can you explain what the water bath method is?
6: Absolutely. Um, I would say water bathing is pretty easy. It's just a pot of boiling water. The main thing is to make sure that you've got an inch of water above um, your jar. So if you're you know, canning in quart-sized jars or pint-sized jars, you just have to make sure that your pot is large enough, um, and then making sure you're following those tested recipes to make sure you're boiling it for the appropriate amount of time.
0: Now, how about canning, pressure canning specifically? Katie, is there any special equipment needed for that?
5: Yeah. Oh, yes, you need a pressure canner.
0: <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. What's the process like?
5: Uh, pressure canning is a lot different. So, uh, essentially, um, you know, you are able to can things with uh, lower acid or no acid. So, uh, you don't really have to worry about your pH level. So you just need a pressure canner and you need to, um, decide whether you're going to hot pack or cold pack. And then, uh, just, it's all about time.
0: Now you mentioned acid. Why would I need acid? Why would I add acid to the foods that I'm trying to preserve?
5: So, um, if you don't have acid and, and you don't, uh, go over the temperature for like whenever you hot water boil, um, you know, you, you have to control the acidity, the acidity in that because toxins can grow. If you don't have it, when pressure canning, you're actually going above the boiling point of water, the boiling temperature point. Uh, so you don't have to be concerned about the, uh, about any acid in your pressure canning.
0: Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil lake We're talking this hour about preserving and canning foods with experts Elizabeth Sanders and Katie Koss. Join the discussion by tweeting us at ThisIsNashville. All right, so, you know, when I was younger, my grandmother would can peaches and collard greens, and she would always be aware of the safety measures because she didn't want us to get sick. So, Elizabeth, what should people be mindful of as they prepare to preserve their foods?
6: Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite things is to remind people that we're we're trying to reduce the the risk of um, any kind of nasty micro organisms or um, mold or yeast or things like that growing in our foods. And um, Katie was absolutely right with when we're adding that acid in or when that acid is absent uh, for pressure canning, making sure it gets up to the proper temperature. But when you're water bath canning, um, you know, making sure that you're using 5% um, acidity vinegar, uh, making sure that you're adding extra citric acid or lemon juice to your fruits and, um, or even sometimes vegetables, if you're doing a chutney of of sorts. And so uh, making sure that we're, eliminating any opportunity for the harmful toxins that can grow um specifically with the pressure canning it's the botulism bacteria which everyone is really worried about but it only happens um when there's not enough acid present and the temperature is also not high enough
0: okay now katie tell me what are some of the most common mistakes people make when canning
5: uh putting cold jars in hot water (laughs) i've seen that quite a bit with uh, whenever I was trying to teach my line cooks is they, they didn't understand that your, your glass has to be tempered before you can put your jars in.
0: Okay. So a lot, lot of glass explosions going on, huh?
5: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah.
0: <laughs> now I, I heard something about pH level. Can either one of you kind of explain that to us? Yeah,
5: okay.
6: sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll gladly uh, touch on that one. So with the pH level, you know, you're really wanting something to be more on the on a, the acidic side. As far as um, our fruits go, um, that's why we're adding vinegar to vegetable products there. But the tomatoes are about the bottom line of where you can really get anything that's more acidic than that you're usually in the clear and if sometimes you may have to add some um, citric acid like i mentioned before or lemon juice so if you grew up with a grandparent that loved to can tomatoes i have lots of memories of doing that with my family um it was always mindful if you wanted to water bath those instead of having a pressure can which takes more time and processes making sure to add in that citric acid or lemon juice was really important. Once again, to eliminate the opportunity for those nasty bacteria that we don't want growing in there uh, to thrive.
0: All right, now, Elizabeth, I understand that you have a canned butternut squash Alfredo recipe that sounds really, really delicious. Can you give us your secrets?
6: Oh my goodness. Well, I would say with anything butternut squash, it is the time. It is time for butternut squash and I'm so excited. But my favorite thing to add is a little bit of sage. That is one of my favorite herbs that goes right alongside um, butternut squash for sure. And it's one of the things, there's so many ways that you can preserve it. And if you don't have a pressure canner to go through that process, my favorite way to preserve it is actually to go ahead and roast it. And then after it's come out the oven and cooled down to room temperature, pop it in a Ziploc bag and put it in the freezer. It makes it so, so delicious to add to a hash or to throw in the blender with some chicken broth or vegetable broth and all your other herbs and spices, um, a little bit of Parmesan and
0: cream and toss right over some noodles. How long will it keep in the freezer?
6: In the freezer, you can look at at least about um, six to nine months for sure. You can go past, there's a lot of things that go into consideration how, good, how long things are going to last as far as how full is your freezer? How often is the temperature changing inside? Um, you know, how is it preserved? Did you suck all the air out of the bag before you put it in there? You know, keeping it from freezer burn. So with that, we would definitely say at least nine months, but it may be good past
5: that.
0: Okay, now Katie, got a question for you. What's the weirdest thing you've ever canned?
5: uh i i guess chicken would probably be one of them um and it's something that people don't kind of think about doing very often i mean you definitely see um you know the the canned soup and no canned chicken noodle soup but actually um uh pressure canning your own proteins is is something that is actually very common to do i first kind of got into it um seeing the Mennonite women do it and uh and then after that i I was like, that is actually the perfect thing to, uh, to put in my larder is, is um, processing your own proteins.
0: So you, when you say chicken, you mean the whole thing, right?
5: Yes. So you can, and you can, you can butcher it. Uh, you can obviously, you know, and you can do it raw or you can cook it, uh, whichever way, but yes, you can actually leave the bones in.
0: Okay. Real important question is how does it taste?
5: Oh, it's delicious if you do it correctly
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay so you're a chef what are some canned chicken recipes that you like to work with
5: um i well i just like to stick to the basics you know especially in middle tennessee where i have the most amazing uh chicken farmers um so just chicken stock uh you can throw lots of herbs in there um and some garlic and and just Keep it, keep it as basic as possible.
0: So it's that perfect time. You take out your canned chicken from last year, a few months ago to make chicken noodle soup because it is soup season, right?
5: It is absolutely.
0: Okay. How big of a jar are we talking? Cause I can, when I imagine a chicken in a can, that's a pretty big jar.
5: Uh, yeah. So if, if you're doing, you know, half chicken or whole chicken you, you need at least a, a half gallon jar. Um, which means that you need a a bigger size pressure canner than what you would typically find in your home cook. Um, But once again, I did this in uh, my restaurant, so we had in some pretty big equipment for that.
0: Okay, now you both are giving me some really wild ideas. Elizabeth, what advice do you have for people who are thinking about getting started like me?
6: Yeah, one of the biggest things uh, and pieces of recommendation I have is make sure that you're using tested recipes. Um, we're very fortunate with um, being a part of the Cooperative Extension System to not just rely on what University of Tennessee and Tennessee State provide, but the information that we can um, pull from other universities across the nation that have have tested these recipes to make sure that they're safe. And we get a lot of questions. What if I have, you know, my grandmother's recipe? Um, You know, if you have any questions, give your Extension agent a call. Oftentimes it's just altering some of those herbs and things um, to, you know, to get the flavor you're looking for while making sure that you're following all all the tested methods um water you know water bathing or blanching your vegetables before freezing or using that pressure canner so use tested recipes and call your extension agents
0: the internet can sometimes be dicey where can i go to find like really good useful information
6: Absolutely. The National Center for Home Food Preservation um, is the best place to go. They partner with the USDA um, and they're housed in um, in Georgia. And they've partnered to put out a, a ton of information over all sorts of food preservation methods, whether that be drying, freezing, canning and et cetera. There's lots of delicious recipes on there. And uh, I've even found a recipe for how to can squirrels. So, Don't question the limits of of what's out there, but making sure you use those tested recipes, that's the first place that I would go to.
0: Can you give us a real quick example of canning squirrels? What's that recipe like real quick? (laughs)
6: <laughs> it's very similar to canning chicken, actually, you know, of course, if you're, if, it's, it's a whole thing if you're hunting it yourself, but um, cooking it before, adding your herbs, uh, usually you kind of lightly use your herbs whenever uh, doing some of that pressure canning, as they, they can change flavor a little bit, but putting it into your jar with lots of broth and then processing that for about 90 minutes in your pressure canner.
0: Okay, now, Katie, aside from practical reasons, what do you love about preserving foods?
5: Uh, I I love the fact that I could pull something out from summertime or from wintertime at you know at any point of the year and be able to use it you know using um, ingredients that are not in season and putting them on a menu you know putting them in your dish I mean that that's the the secret weapon that chefs should have in their in their restaurants.
0: Would you say it's therapeutic?
5: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Now, you know, my idea of like preserving is throwing things in a Ziploc bag and throwing that in the freezer. But obviously, that's not going to get it. What are some things I can buy real quick at the store that will help me out? 30 seconds. Elizabeth?
6: Oh, my gosh. All of the vegetable mixes are my favorite. Um, And if you decide that you've got a hankering for strawberry jelly, you can make it from frozen strawberries. So those are just some of the things that I would always keep um, that are helpful if you get in the canning
0: mood. Wow, that is preservation expert Elizabeth Sanders. She is the canning boss and the director at the UTTSU Extension. She was joined by chef and food preservation expert Katie Koss. I want to thank you both for being with us today, and thanks for the great ideas. Thanks for We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it is wedding season. We know our city is an attraction for bachelorettes, but what is it like to have a wedding here? Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, and Amir Blade. Special thanks to Joan Clayton Davis and Steve Cavendish. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at ThisIsNashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ecolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.